I've labeled them as the party of communism, even though I have always pointed out that there are millions of Democrats who are good, loyal Americans, and many office holders here in Washington who are anti-communist. But there are those who feel that they should censure me, not for, not because I cross-examined Zwicker trying to find out of, but a communist whom he promoted, honorably discharged. There, there are some Republicans who feel likewise. Now, I, I consider that, uh, yes, that's, that's a lynching bee. That is Senator Joseph McCarthy. He is the guest on the very first episode of the popular CBS News program, Face the Nation. It is November 7th, 1954. As you can hear in that clip, Joseph McCarthy, a Republican, is on national television claiming that the Democratic Party is secretly harboring communists. The other guests are arguing with him, claiming he is not telling the truth and is widely over-exaggerating, but he continues his tirades. This was a trend for Senator McCarthy, the last in a long series of efforts by him in the federal government to out those he considered to be political dissidents. Elected to the Senate in 1946, Joseph McCarthy was a Republican who served during World War II in the Marine Corps. He made several claims about his military career over the years, though some of them were met with speculation in the years that followed his death. When he ran for senator, he touted his military experience and claimed that his opponent was a coward for not enlisting in the war. McCarthy received loads and loads of campaign funding from out of state, which propelled him to a massive victory in Wisconsin. Once in the Senate, he spent the first three years under the radar. However, by the time 1950 rolled around, Joseph McCarthy was hurtling towards the fight that would define his career and his legacy. In 1950, he would claim before a women's club in West Virginia that he had a list. On that list was 205 names of State Department employees. All of the people on that list, he claimed, were communists, working undercover to destroy our government. For many, this accusation had been a long time coming. Many forget this, but the Red Scare actually began after World War I, after Russian Revolution led to the rise of communism. As labor strikes rose up around the United States at the same time, a chain of events ramped up paranoia in the country. Labor organizers were considered anarchists and were targeted by the American government for their anti-establishment views. This led to bombs going off in major American cities and an eventual crackdown of, quote, leftists, radicals, and anarchists, end quote. When the Second World War ended and Russia emerged yet again as the rival world power in the Cold War, the fear continued to simmer under the surface. The idea of covert Russians hiding in the U.S., though not unfounded, became a legitimate nightmare for everyday Americans. It even spread to the federal government where, in March of 1947, President Truman instituted an executive order called the Loyalty Order, wherein federal employees had to vow allegiance to the American federal government. They would be analyzed and tested to prove said loyalty. Only a few employees ever faced any scrutiny from these tests, but it did not stir confidence from the public. People were afraid, and the government was doing borderline nothing to assuage their fears. Additionally, the House Un-American Activities Committee and the House of Representatives had already been around for over a decade when the Loyalty Order and McCarthy came around. They were created to seek out and find communists they believed were hidden within American institutions. Soon, the committee was holding extended investigations in the House of Representatives, notably bringing in members of the entertainment industry in Hollywood, claiming they were secretly spreading communist ideologies through film and television. 
beyond Hollywood, the committee targeted public officials and employees from across the country, blacklisting anyone who pled the fifth or disagreed with the principles that the committee was supposedly fighting for. Historians have since noted that the HUAC was one of the most flagrant abuses of free speech in the 20th century. Then, like kindling to a fire, Joseph McCarthy claimed that he had a list of 200 communists in the State Department. Across the country, all hell broke loose. The Red Scare had spread to every corner of the United States, and not just at the federal level, but at the state level as well. In Florida, as the Republican and Democrat Party vied to remain in power as the dominant political force within our state, a group of Democrats rallied around McCarthy's sensibilities. They had the same fear that communists and other groups they deemed reprehensible were gathering power and influence in their state mostly based out of rural counties and vowing to keep Florida free from quote-unquote undesirables, this group of men united under a common cause and a common name, the Pork Chop Gang. By the mid-1950s, the Pork Chop Gang became the most influential group of politicians in the state of Florida. Their powers mostly unchecked, they ruled our state legislature for nearly 20 years. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the Pork Chop Gang, Part 1, the tale of the indomitable group of Southern Democrats whose influence on our state was unprecedented. Today, in the first half of this story, we'll be discussing the origins of the Pork Chop Gang, how these men came together and why, and how they sought about shaping Florida in their image. This is the Pork Chop Gang, Part 1. Power block. The South was changing. Florida in particular was facing a brand new version of the South as America hurtled into the mid-20th century. The most notable shift was the new density of population. Thousands of people were coming to our state in droves, but they weren't settling where people usually settled in Florida. In the past, people stuck to the north, moving into Gainesville or Jacksonville. Even Orlando and Tampa in the middle of the state were more prone to population boosts. But now, as the southern tip of Florida began to develop, Miami became the major hub of population growth. And it wasn't just new people moving to Miami. They were northerners, and many were Republicans. This was before the shift in party politics. The Democrats were more conservative, the Republicans more progressive, though even those definitions do not by any means meet our current definitions of those ideologies. The Democrats, specifically in the South, wanted to keep segregation in place. They sought voting disenfranchisement for poor Americans, notably in black communities, and wanted to keep their southern states ruled by Democrats by any means necessary. The Northerners that moved into Miami were the beginnings of that famous political phrase you've probably heard. In Florida, the further south you go, the further north you get. The Democrats' power was no longer assured. This was around the time when Florida and the rest of the south was really building the myth of a lost cause, that the, the Confederacy didn't really lose. That is Seth White's. My name is Seth White. I'm an associate professor of history at Dalton State College in Dalton, Georgia. Seth wrote a dissertation on the Pork Chop Gang a few years ago when he was finishing his PhD at Florida State University. It's called Bourbon, Pork Chops, and Red Peppers, Political Immorality in Florida, 1946-1968. to 1968. 
It's over 200 pages long. I love it. I've read through it a couple times. Seth was a co-editor on a book about Florida's role in the American Civil War and is currently working on a new book about the political climate concerning race in Miami during the latter half of the 20th century. As he was saying, though, the Civil War never ended for many people in the South. Many Southern conservative Democrats were still fighting that fight. This is when you see all the, the Confederate statues pop up all around the state. And when Florida adopts the, the flag that it has today, which is, you know, a play on the Confederate battle flag. But they were losing support in waves as more people came into the state. You know, North Florida was a massive training ground for the D-Day invasions and, and for for soldiers. And a lot of the soldiers from around the country um, came here and they're like, hey, this is a pretty good place to live. And a lot of them, after they served in Europe and the Pacific, came back and stayed in Florida. And they weren't, you know, native Floridians or native Southerners. And they brought with them what native Floridians and native Southerners thought were alien views on race, race relations, civil rights, politics in general. This was a problem for the Democrats. Most people in Florida lived in South Florida now, and whole tides of political shifts could be determined simply by the sheer density of folks that populated the Southern tip. If the Democrats wanted any influence in the state of Florida, they'd have to ensure they could quell the voting power of growing cities like Miami and even Orlando and Tampa. Luckily for them, the Democrats who continued to rule the northern parts of Florida had a broken political system on their side. They're losing power, but they're, they, they see the way to keep power because the state is so malapportioned. Because the 1885 Constitution had all these loopholes where you did not have to redistrict if you didn't want to. The wording in the 1885 Constitution said basically you redistricted every 10 years if you felt the need to do so. So even though Republicans were slowly gaining more and more power through the South, the conservative Democrats along the panhandle, from Pensacola to Jacksonville, had strength in numbers, and they held a huge majority in the legislature. The legislature is still dominated by Jefferson County and Madison County in the panhandle. I mean, I have some statistics here because I love statistics, and I, I wrote some of them down. By 1960, 12.3% of the population could elect a majority in the state Senate, and 14.7% of the population could elect a majority in the Florida House of Representatives. That is a completely broken political system, and the conservative Democrats thrived on it to keep their power. Along with that, they voted all along the same line, without question, and formed what is called a power block, block being spelled B-L-O-C. Power blocks are common and occur all over democratic governments where legislators agree to agree, no matter what. And in Florida in the mid-20th century, this power block of Democrats was called the Pork Chop Gang. First of all, it's still debated today exactly where the name came from. There are, there are a couple of people who claim that they named the Porkchop Gang. One was the longtime editor of what well, was Tribune. the Tampa Tribune, yeah. yeah. He claimed 
that he named them the Pork Chop Gang in the mid-1950s. And he claimed that he gave them the name this group of rural, mostly North Florida, but some Central Florida, but rural states' rights, segregationist Democrats, because obviously, as you know, we know there, there was really no Republican Party in, anywhere in the South, or viable Republican Party anywhere in the South. He said they stood up for themselves and their own values, and they stood up for for pork, uh, you know, in, in bills and, and packing bills with their own pork. I guess what they wanted to pack bills for themselves and for their constituents and not worrying about the rest of the state. Then other historians said it had to do with the differences between North and South Florida and what people, I guess, stereotypically or traditionally ate in the two regions of the states, in the two regions of the state, um, North Floridians eating pork chops, being pork choppers, South Floridians eating lamb chops and being lamb choppers. Their name is where the folksiness begins and ends. The Pork Chop Gang did not have such friendly ideas in mind. Its origins are really rooted in the debates that were raging in Florida for decades, way back into the 19th century. Wherever they officially started, their roots go back to Reconstruction. Right. Their, their roots go back to right after Reconstruction, when the state was, you know, quote-unquote, redeemed from carpetbaggers and scalawags and northern republicans and all of that because they stood for the same thing they stood for white supremacy they stood for segregation they stood for jim crow they stood for all of that as the decades wore on they saw the future coming just as clearly as everyone else they were desperate to keep their power for as long as humanly possible. They formed this block in order to stay afloat, and by doing so, continued to inflict their wishes onto the state at will. The members of the Pork Chop Gang were around 20 conservative Democrat legislators who served in the House of Representatives together. Their memberships sometimes fluctuated, obviously due to elections, and their membership was also far from official until, that is, at least the 50s. Alan Morris, whose name you'll see all over Florida politics, he claimed that a group of who would become the Pork Chop Gang took what he called a blood oath at a fishing camp in Taylor County in 1955 to be what became the Pork Chop Gang. They gathered at a fishing camp owned by one of their members, Rayburn C. Horn. It was called Natal Rise out in Taylor County. It's still there. The legislators would fish along the river, discuss politics, and plan their moves within the state legislature. Whether or not the blood oath actually happened, the Pork Chop Gang were bonded around the things they believed in, and they would stop at nothing to see it come to pass. And for many, many years, they succeeded. Inaction was the Pork Chop Gang's primary means of control. To quote Seth's paper directly, quote, The pork choppers dragged their feet in an attempt to impede progress, which was synonymous with preserving their own power. End quote. Seth notes that a large portion of this counter-assault to progress was based in racism. 
For example, FDR, a Democrat, proposed the New Deal in the 30s to combat the plight that the Great Depression had wrought on the country. The Democrats supported it, but when black Americans also began to approve of the New Deal, southern white politicians removed their support. Seth's paper also notes that the Ku Klux Klan, though not out-and-out out connected to the Porkchop Gang, were agreeing on many political views that they supported. Any time the Florida government pushed towards progress in this era, the Porkchop Gang would drag their feet, and the KKK would rear their monstrous head. It was a two-fold assault against forward motion. Now, the men who made up the Porkchop Gang, they weren't these shadowy figures in the halls of Tallahassee. Quite the opposite. These men were prominent figures before, during, and after their time with the Porkchop Gang. The most essential member was Charlie Johns, a state senator elected right as the Red Scare was starting to boil in America. He was appointed Senate President in April of 1953. Seth is very candid on who Johns was as a person. Charlie Johns is, you know, a fascinating character, and, and not in a good way. Um, <laughs> Charlie Johns is the Joseph McCarthy of Florida. He is power hungry. His family were some of the original settlers in that area in North Florida, in between Jacksonville and, and, and Lake City. His father had been involved in politics. His older brother had been in the state Senate Back in the 1920s, his older brother had been president of the state senate. So it was kind of a family little dynasty in the Florida State Senate. Johns had been in the state senate. He became president of the state senate in 53 and then becomes acting governor in 54. You heard that right. He becomes acting governor in 1954. Dan McCarty, a more progressive Democrat, died suddenly in the middle of his term. At that time, the president of the Senate assumed the governorship if the governor was gone. Charlie Johns, member of the Porkchop Gang, staunch believer in the lost cause in the Old South, was the Senate president. So, he assumed the governorship soon after McCarty's passing. Almost immediately, he sought about eliminating every appointee that McCarty had put up in his short term in office. Being only acting governor, however, he was denied the opportunity to fully fire them. Instead, he suspended them, blocking them from doing the jobs they had been hired to do. In that time, Johns rallied his opportunities and vied for a proper election to the governorship in 1954. If the Democrats supported him now and he could truly win the office, then his case could be made in full. But he had an enemy and a man named Leroy Collins who found Johns reprehensible. Collins was also running in the Democratic primary against Johns, and he came after Johns' policies and beliefs, deriding him for his behavior as acting governor, criticizing the behavior of the pork chop gang, and admonishing Charlie Johns for refusing to support a measure that would have condemned the KKK. In the first Democratic primary, the votes were too close to call, thanks to a third Democrat splitting the progressive vote. Collins running on his progressive ideas couldn't garner enough support. In the second Democratic primary, however, Collins changed his tune on a very important subject, segregation. Vying for the Democratic nomination, he dropped his supposed progressive ideas and favored instead to keep segregation in place. It's fascinating. Outside of, of Leon County and outside of Tallahassee, which was Leroy Collins' home, Charlie Johns sweeps North Florida. And Leroy Collins sweeps Orlando South. 
and it's just a split. Collins won the Democratic nomination on May 25, 1954. Eight days earlier, on the 17th, Brown versus Board of Education was decided in the Supreme Court. Segregated schools were no longer allowed in the United States of America. The Democratic Party promptly imploded. Leroy Collins confidently wins the governorship just as the South is forced to reckon with the rampant problem of segregation in their states. Collins swore he was against integration and maintained that belief even as the country started implementing more and more desegregating policies. I think Collins is one of those people who privately he probably had different views than what he had publicly. He knew he had to come out and say he supported segregation. I think privately he was probably more progressive than he was publicly. There was a Gallup poll in Florida in 1954, and 81% of Floridians supported segregation. So, you know, you're not going to get elected if you come out and say, I want to integrate the school. The highly conservative members of the Pork Chop Gang, now reunited in the legislature with their leader, Charlie Johns, despised Leroy Collins. The feeling was mutual, and even though Collins himself said he supported segregation, he did not want to agree with the Pork Chop Gang, who also disagreed with the Supreme Court decision. Collins settled on playing the middle, both disagreeing with integration and refusing to argue against it in federal conversations. In Seth's article, he points out that, though the Pork Chop Gang were still publicly distanced from the Ku Klux Klan, they were united in their feeling on segregation. Collins tried to stay calm in the face of his political enemies, both in legislature and out, but pressure was beginning to mount. He spent the first two years of his governorship battling the full-on assault from other members of the Democratic Party, and in 1956, he faced a new challenge. Now, I know this is complicated, but follow me here. Leroy Collins was technically just elected to finish Dan McCarty's term, which was 1952 to 1956. McCarty died in 53, Charlie Johns was governor for most of 1954, and Collins ran and then finished out the term until 1956. The Democrats in the legislature tried to prevent Collins from running for re-election, saying that his governorship basically didn't count, but they were defeated and Collins ran to be Florida's governor for another four years. Four other Democrats entered the primary, certain that their vocal beliefs could rally and defeat Leroy Collins. Collins runs against an actual Klansman. He runs against a couple other Democrats, and then he runs against a retired National Guard General, Sumter Lowry, who is an avowed racist. Um, and he comes in second place. Sumter Lowry comes in second place. 1956 primary is not talked about a lot, but it is just one of the defining moments of Florida politics because Leroy Collins wins easily. It doesn't take a runoff like the Collins-Charlie Johns race took a runoff, but Collins gets 52% of the vote. Lowry gets about 28% of the vote, and this guy is just, you know, segregation now, segregation forever type of guy, right. and... 
Collins is running as the moderate segregationist. <laughs> With Collins reelected, the pork chop gang was backed into a corner. The people of Florida had shown their support for Leroy, despite his fairly moderate take on segregation, and the gang felt their opportunities slipping away. What Collins would say was, I support segregation, but within the framework of the law. Right. So if the Supreme Court said, you know, ruled in Brown v. Board, he wasn't going to fight the federal government. You know, he was said, I will do everything in my power, but not go against the federal government, which made him different than, you know, the, the governor of Georgia, who said the Constitution is a mere scrap of paper. So he wasn't going to go that far. The pork chop gang had one last Hail Mary. Going back as far as the Civil War, the Democratic Party had been about states' rights above federal control. This was true when the federal government wanted to end slavery, and it was true again with the Brown decision. The governor, they believed, was not doing enough to speak up for the will of the Florida voter, who they believed wanted to keep segregation in place. They rallied and attempted to pass a resolution called an interposition resolution. They wanted to make a statement that Florida did not agree with the Supreme Court decision and would fight the change as best they could. They can basically say that what the federal government is doing is, is unconstitutional, because obviously the Supreme Court decides that. And But, but that's basically what it is. It's, it's southern states saying that if they don't like what the federal government is doing, they're just going to ignore it. So they were just going to ignore, you know, civil rights legislation or Supreme Court's decisions. And, and, and that's basically what it was. Leroy Collins, entirely against the extremism that the pork chop gang and their ilk survived on, used a little known provision in the state constitution to prematurely end the legislative session to prevent them from passing their resolution. It had no impact, however, because they simply passed the resolution the next time they gathered but it was a smack in the face to everything the pork chop gang was fighting for. It was a spitting war now, mostly comments of cruelty toward one another making glorified statements back and forth with no actual change coming about. When the resolution crossed the governor's desk, he couldn't even veto it as it was simply a statement rather than a bill. He signed it but added in a handwritten note his dissent. He scribbled it in cursive along the signature lines of the resolution crammed together on the bottom of the sheet. It was a powerful move against what the pork chop gang was trying to do, but it wasn't enough. Leroy had set himself on a path he could not step off of. Though elected because of his stance on retaining segregation, his feeling on not resisting inevitable change set him in direct opposition to the regressive fears present in the pork chop gang and their supporters. Seth Weitz points out that Collins was, of course, angling to a future career in national politics. He couldn't fight too hard against federal implementation of integration, but he also couldn't get any laws passed in the state because of the ardent control of the legislature by the pork chop gang. The old constitution that allowed them to have that much power couldn't be revised because that would also require legislative approval, and the pork chop gang wouldn't willingly give up their control over the state government. Leroy Collins had nothing he could do. Charlie Johns, on the other hand, had a plan. Back in the Senate, he was facing the same stalemate from a different perspective. The pork chop gang was scrambling for a chance to make sure their enemies were checked and their power was not. Whatever his friends in the legislature wanted to do, Leroy Collins was an enemy. They couldn't get anything done with him in direct opposition to their behavior. 
If they wanted to stop integration in its tracks, they needed to do something, something drastic. Johns found an example of what to do from a prominent figure in the federal government, a senator from Wisconsin named Joseph McCarthy. McCarthy used his committee in Congress to target his enemies, inflame the Red Scare, and point fingers at will. Though it did not necessarily end very well for Joseph McCarthy, Charlie Johns considered this to be their turning point. And in 1956, Charlie Johns launched the Florida Legislative Investigation Committee, colloquially called the Johns Committee, and McCarthyism was reborn in the state of Florida. Well, this is one of the darkest periods in Florida political history. Next week, The Pork Chop Gang Part 2, The Scares. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you're here. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some wonderful stories waiting for you in the back catalog. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. I have covered so many stories about this specific weird era of Florida's political history. I talked about Ruben Askew, the governor who was right after the Pork Chop Gang earlier this season. I talked about one of the most essential elections to the governorship that happened right around the time of the Pork Chop Gang last year. I'll include all the links to all of those stories at the link below. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible to those who haven't heard of it, and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. If you have an idea for a story for this show, I'm always looking for news stories, especially as I'm preparing for next season. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Seth Weitz. We literally spent an hour talking about this time in political history. He will be back next episode, but I've included some links in the description below of his work. You really should check it out, especially his amazing paper about the Pork Chop Gang. It is so in-depth and so fascinating. Give it a read if you want to know even more. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week, part two of the Pork Chop Gang. We talk about the investigative committee, we have another guest, and we break down the eventual collapse of the Pork Chop Gang and why their impact is so important. By the way, sometime later this month is going to be the Wait 5 Minutes holiday episode. I'll tell you more about that when it comes. I'm very excited. You're going to love it. Anyway, next week, Pork Chop Gang, part two. I'll see you there. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. And please, drink more water. Have a good week. Take care of yourself. <laughs>